Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 7 of the Essential X Lapsed. The uh, ironically titled program uh, might be the uh, only show people care less about than original recipe X Lapsed. So uh, calling it Essential is kind of a leap. But here we are talking about the Silver Age of X-Men comics and uh, I guess X-Men adjacent comics as, uh, as we're going to find out today. Now, if you're following along, I mentioned last episode that uh, X-Men number 6's Namor guest appearance and references to both the Fantastic Four and the Avengers were what firmly placed the X-Men into the Marvel shared universe. I saw that as the kind of the first time that it was acknowledged that they were all breathing the same air, right? Well, I was wrong. <laughs> now, the issue we're going to discuss today is the actual first ever X-Men crossover slash guest appearance slash acknowledgement that uh, the X-Men do indeed breathe the same air as uh, the rest of the characters that appear in Marvel's colorful magazines. Now today, let's talk about Tales of Suspense number 49. This had a January 1964 cover date. The story is called The New Iron Man Meets the Angel. Written and edited by Stan Lee with pencils by Steve Ditko. Inks, Paul Reinman. Colors, uh, hmm, maybe the same person who does the X-Men? <laughs> Whoever that might be. Letters by S. Rosen, cover price 12 cents American. Now first things first, something weird about the cover and opening splash pages here. Now Stan says that the Angel is making his guest appearance in Tales of Suspense via a special arrangement... With the X-Men magazine Hmm Now inside it states, quote The Angel and the X-Men appear in this story Through the courtesy of the editors of the X-Men magazine The Avengers are depicted briefly on these pages By special arrangement with the copyright owners of the Avengers magazine How weird is that? It's like uh, Stan Lee would allow Stan Lee to use Stan Lee's X-Men and Avengers characters From Stan Lee's Marvel magazines and Stan Lee's other Marvel magazine, which features someone from Stan Lee's Fantastic Four. I don't know, it's uh, just some Silver Age silliness, and it really, really tickled me. Anyway, now our spoilery splash page shows the Angel and Iron Man engaging in battle high above, I don't know, the vast farmland adjacent to Manhattan? I don't know, maybe uh, Central Park was more farm-like back in 1964. Anyway, how did we get here? Well, you see, Angel was heading back to the Xavier School one day, and he figured he'd save himself, like, I don't know, 20, 30 seconds by cutting across the Stark factory. And he does so. And as he does so, he sees Iron Man waving at him frantically on the ground. Warren simply assumes that Iron Man is a fan who's excited to see him. And you know, uh, Angel is quite excited to see Iron Man as well in the flesh, or metal, or whatever it is that an Iron Man is composed of. Now here's the thing. Tony is not waving because he's happy to see him. He's actually warning the Angel to stay away because he's just about to test an atomic bomb. Yes, an atomic bomb. Right outside the city. Uh, you'd almost think there'd be some sort of signage up or something. But no. Uh, just an idiot in an iron suit flailing his arms like a jackass. That's all the warning you need that an atomic bomb is about to go off. Anyway, Tony jets up to cut off the angel at the pass. But 
it's too late, because the atomic bomb goes off, and New York is vaporized, killing the Avengers, X-Men, Spider-Man, and Fantastic Four. Then about a year later, Galactus arrives, and with no one to stop him, devours the planet, from which he gets an especially bad case of Ajita. So, uh, Marvel Universe, 1961-1964. See, I, I can write the Marvel Universe's tombstone just like our current year head of X did during the 2015 Secret Wars, and, uh, I don't know, maybe my way was a little bit more satisfying. Okay, okay, actually none of that happened, except that the atomic bomb did explode. That did happen, and the uh, radioactivity hits both Iron Man and the Angel. However, Tony's armor somehow protects him from it. I don't know, maybe it's a... Uh, Maybe his armor is made out of uh, refrigerator parts. Is that, a, is that an Indiana Jones reference? I could have sworn I remember uh, people complaining about that not too long ago. Now, Warren, unfortunately, is pelted with the stuff but good. So, we gotta assume he's going to die, like, any minute from now, right? Well, no. That's not the case at all. Now, don't get me wrong. Warren does feel different after being bombarded by atomic radiation. Uh, he actually feels like a completely new person. Someone sneakier, craftier, slyer, and yes, he'll even admit, a more evil person. Um, okay. Um, Tony, after recovering from the blast, attempts to chase Angel down in order to help him. But his little booty jets give out and he plummets to the newly infertile and radioactive Earth below. And I mean, I'm gonna come clean here, I am reading this in the Black and White Essentials volume. So I just gotta assume that the entirety of the Stark factory is glowing bright green at this point, right? It's, it's gotta be. Anyway, he crashes through the roof of his laboratory, but he's able to engage his onboard magnetic repellers to slow his fall just enough to save him from any sort of horrible injury. Unfortunately for him, his armor will require some repairs before he can once again try and hunt down the angel. He calls into Pepper Potts, who looks incredibly matronly here, and he tells her that, uh... He is not to be disturbed for the next several hours. Scene shift. We're over to the Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters, where Warren Worthington informs his classmates slash teammates slash friends that he's leaving the X-Men. Now, it's worth noting here, Ditko draws some strange-looking X-Men. Um, Kid Cool looks like he's in, like, partial thaw. Looks more like a muck man than an ice man. It's very, very unpleasant-looking. Now, the team as you might imagine, is quite shocked at the Angel's betrayal. To which, he asserts that he just doesn't have time to waste with the loser X-Men anymore. And instead, he's going to join up with the so-called evil mutants. Because that is where the action is. Now, Gene suggests that they stop Warren from leaving until Professor X can return from wherever he is. Angel doesn't dig that idea so much, and so a fight is on. Now, Angel flips Beast right into Cyclops while evading Bobby's ice wall and Jean's microwave lines. I suppose this makes sense, as every single issue of the X-Men to this point has Angel deftly evading something or another. That's basically his, his secondary mutation, is just being able to avoid things. Now, we jump back to Tony. Now, he's affixing a paper-thin iron foil insulation to his chest plate, and he refers to himself as a, quote, ever-loving millionaire playboy industrialist. Ay ay ay. Um, back to Xavier's, or as the caption reads, back to the ranch. Okay. Angel is throwing some furniture at his former teammates before making a break for it. Just then, Professor X wheels up, 
And when the X-Men try to explain the sitch, he talks to them all like they're idiots. Which I'd say is probably just a way to fill readers of Tales of Suspense in on his mental powers. But nah, Professor X is just a dick. Cyclops won't stop talking. He's like, hey, we gotta tell you. And so Beast kindly tells him to shut up at his face. Now, Xavier reaches out to the angel and orders that he return at once. And he calls this an unqualified order. Which, I mean, that might make sense. I've never heard anyone refer to an order as being unqualified before. Uh, maybe that meant something different then, or maybe I'm, maybe I'm just an idiot. I don't know. Angel refuses, again proclaiming himself as being the newest in a line of so-called evil mutants. Xavier wonders if he's failed, if the whole X-Men experiment was doomed from the start. What if all he's been doing is grooming tomorrow's supervillains? And trying to peek up Jean's skirt. Anyway, from here, the X-Men hop on their closed-circuit CB radio gimmick to try and alert the Avengers. The, the who now? The Avengers? Oh, oh, you know the Avengers. Now, this is where we find out that this issue is firmly placed before the events of Avengers number 4. And heck, maybe even earlier, as the Hulk is still depicted as being a member of the team. So that would also put this before X-Men number 4, so before the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants is introduced. So the Avengers roll call includes Hulk, Thor, Giant Man, Wasp, and Iron Man. So no Captain America, so this is pre-Avengers number 4. So let's follow Cyclops' radio alert. We see that Bruce Banner did not get it. He did not get the message because he's busily working on some sort of science-y thing out in a New Mexico proving ground. Thor also didn't get it because he's currently Dr. Don Blaking. Hank and Janet missed it as well because they're currently cutting a rug somewhere, staring it into each other's eyes. Tony Stark, however, did get the alert. And, and I mean, this is his book, so it stands to reason, right? So, Tony's concealed transmitter begins to ping while he's in a meeting with Happy Hogan. He gruffly excuses himself, basically telling Happy to get out of his face. Happy barges over to Pepper's desk to uh, whinge a bit. Tony immediately knows that this alert pertains to the angel. That kind of begs the question as to why he just stopped pursuing him in the first place. I mean, his armor is fixed, yes? You'd figure his top priority might be checking in with the superhero who he caused to go bad by blowing up an atomic bomb in his face, right? Maybe? I don't know, what do I know? Back to the angel. Now he's trying to figure out how he might start running with the baddies. How does one find a group of evil mutants, especially before the Brotherhood's introduced? Well, Warren figures that maybe that's not the best course of action, and instead he should draw the bad guys out to him. And so he decides to steal a bunch of dynamite from a construction site and goes nuts with it. In a very, uh, indestructive, undestructive sort of way, whatever means that he didn't break nothing. Now, he causes an explosion in the sky and in the water, right? So I guess we don't have to worry about necessarily walking back any of these atrocities. You know, he didn't really do anything but maybe kill a few birds, kill a few fish, and, uh, I mean, that's just par for the course. So Angel does the thing and stands there to wait for the likes of Magneto, the Vanisher, and the Blob to come find him. Well, maybe just Magneto, because the other two have been mind-wiped, and at this point, Magneto is their only villain. Now, at this point, the National Guard have shown up to deal with this avian threat. Iron Man flies up before they can take aim and fire, pleading with them to give him a chance to fix the situation. He claims that the Angel isn't responsible for his actions, though... He doesn't exactly take the blame himself for 
you know, detonating an atomic bomb nearby. The officers give Iron Man ten entire minutes to de-escalate the situation. And so Tony flies up to the Angel, who is still just hovering there waiting for the evil mutant bus to arrive. He proves to be far more agile than Iron Man, backflipping midair, then grabbing Tony by his booties and dangling him over the city. Iron Man then cuts off his booty jets, which is enough to distract Warren long enough for Tony to grab him by the wrists. Angel is able to break away with ease. And man, really makes you think that Angel was being lined up as a top-tier Marvel character at this point, does it not? Like he's the first X-Man to get a uh, guest spot in another book, or a focused guest spot, because, I mean, they're all here, but he is definitely the standout. He's on the cover, even. I wonder, you know, was Angel going to be like an A-lister? Sure feels that way, huh? Anyway, Angel escapes into a nearby plane hangar. Iron Man uses his magnetic gimmicks to lock a door on the other end so Angel can't escape. You know, it's one of those hangars with doors on either end. And so Angel sees that he's locked in, so he decides to use another door, because another door is wide open. So really, what a waste of some perfectly good magnets. Now Angel, once outside, decides to return the favor, slamming the door behind him, leaving poor Tony Stark locked in the hangar by himself. So hoist by his own magnetic petard here. Um, Tony uses his arm power pack to break his way out. We see a little cross-section of his gauntlet, which I don't know what it's supposed to be showing us besides strong. I, I don't know. Science, I guess. Now, once outside, he spies Angel waiting on a nearby water tower, still spying for evil mutants. Tony then decides it's time to do or die, literally. And so he thrusts right into Angel, grabs him by his non-existent collar, and flies him way up into the atmosphere, to the point where his little booty jets start to give out once again. I don't know if it's because of a lack of, I guess, usable oxygen that high up, or maybe they just burnt out. Who knows? And so... Tony begins to fall, and from this altitude, it means certain death. Angel stops to think for a moment. He knows Iron Man needs help, because otherwise he is definitely going to die. The officers down below comment that they see Iron Man falling, and they already conclude that this is curtains for him. Tony continues to fall, wishing that he had the opportunity to say goodbye to Pepper and Happy. But then, something happens. Warren Worthington III's heart grows three sizes, and he realizes that he must save Iron Man. And so he swoops down and does. Now you see, this was Tony's plan all along, to put himself in the worst danger possible in hopes that it might snap Angel back to his normal heroic self, and thus cure him of atomic bomb radiation. Back on the ground, Iron Man informs the officers that the Angel is back to normal. Which, I mean, that's all well and good, right? But... Dude did just steal and detonate a whole bunch of TNT. Then again, Iron Man himself did just detonate an atomic bomb, so, I mean, who's even keeping track anymore? It's worth noting here that Iron Man does place the blame for Angel's misbehavior on Tony Stark. And, you know, nobody heads off to arrest him either. Angel, upon learning about his bombardment with atomic rays, deduces that it totally makes sense that he was acting so evilly. Um, What? Uh, maybe, maybe this is a meta-commentary on the evils of atomic energy? Maybe Stan Lee is making a comment or a statement on the end of World War II? Or maybe this is just a stupid Silver Age comic. You make the call. 
Anyway, the X-Men arrive to pick up their winged pal, and Professor X pats himself on the back for not completely corrupting his young charges, before commanding that they all report back to the school immediately for class under the threat of... demerits. Angel and Iron Man shake hands and part as friends, hopeful that one day they'll fight on the same side, and uh, that is going to become a theme for basically every X-Men or just plain Marvel uh, guest appearance in these early Silver Age books. So, As Tony flies home, Professor X mentally thanks him for risking his life in order to shake Angel straight. And that's that. That's where we leave it. Next episode, we have an X-Man meeting a member of the Fantastic Four for the first time. Uh, it's Strange Tales, number 120. The first meeting of the Human Torch and Iceman. But now, let's talk about uh, this little Iron Man ditty. And I tell you, I'm like immediately reminded of all the things that I both love and don't so much love about these Silver Age stories with uh, this very issue. I remember when I was doing the Action Comics 100 thing over Chris's on Infinite Earths where I was trying to cover 100 issues of Action Comics before uh, Action Number 1000 came out. And that put me in the uh, the Silver and the Bronze Age uh, fairly, fairly often, I suppose. And in a lot of those stories, the the things that Superman would do would be things that would have to work perfectly, otherwise the the world would end, right? It would be something that would be so dangerous and so high stakes that it could literally blow the Earth you know, out of orbit and send it into the moon or something, or send it into the sun. And it would always work out right. And you'd stop and you'd think, and being, you know, a, a fake-ass comics historian slash analyst, as I am, you try to... I don't know, you try to affix a sort of realism to it, because that's that's what we uh, faux intellectuals do. And you think, like, was it really worth it? You know, was it really worth doing what you did? Because it had to be absolutely perfect, otherwise the world would have ended. You know, everything would have ended if you... If you're doing like a subterfuge or you're doing research or whatever it is, when the success-failure line is so slight and so potentially damaging, (laughs) is it something that it's worth doing? And here we have Iron Man right outside of New York City, or maybe even within New York City, because, I mean, Angel is flying across his factory lot to get to Westchester, so... You gotta assume it's somewhere near a populated city. He's 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 detonating an atomic bomb. That's uh, yeah, that's kind of wild, right? Um, and what's more, Angel and he are bombarded with the the effects of it. I mean, it's very very bizarre here, but also totally fitting with you know silly Silver Age stuff. So you can't help but to appreciate and. Sort of kind of love it, while at the same time being like, how would this <laughs> ever, ever happen? But again, we're reading a story about a, a guy who controls a suit of armor and another one who has wings growing out of his back. So I guess realism is, uh, I don't know, maybe being a little bit pedantic in it. Now talking a little bit more about Silver Age tropes. Uh, this is an early, early appearance of the hero versus hero trope that Marvel has uh Gone on to perfect, then destroy <laughs> in more recent years here. But it's the basic 
you know, misunderstanding slash mind control slash whatever you want to call it that pits two Marvel heroes against one another. It's certainly nothing we haven't seen a million times since this, but at the time this was uh, pretty early, right? This is pretty early in the Marvel the Marvel Universe pantheon here. We're just, uh, what, two, three years into the shared universe. So it's early enough to where this is still something of a novelty here, and... It's one of those things where I wish I had the context for it, or the gestalt for it, where this would be something special. You know, by the time I got into collecting Marvel Comics, uh, the dam had already broken on that, right? Where it's every month somebody was guest appearing in somebody else's book here. It was uh, far less, you know, special when it happened here. You think about things like uh, the Contest of Champions and Secret Wars and how those were huge deals because... It was a time where we were seeing all the heroes together, and it wasn't something that happened constantly. So that was kind of standout material here, kind of like this would be, I would assume, back in the uh, early to mid-60s. This is interesting because if you're a reader of the X-Men and you recognize, hey, what is, what's an X-Men doing fighting Iron Man? You might pick that issue up. Or if you're an Iron Man fan and you see this uh, weird group of uh, you know blue and gold wearing teenagers, you might decide to pick up an issue of X-Men. It's a great way to feed into the idea that uh, this is a shared universe and uh, feels like you know, something of a novelty, right? Something special, something a little bit different than uh, your regular good guy, bad guy sort of thing. So pretty fun to see a you know seminal Marvel team-up fight, misunderstanding, whatever it is. And, uh, and I do love that it is you know rooted in the Silver Age, so it's atomic energy that is uh, co- the cause of it. And not some, you know, philosophical sort of debate about the nature of superheroics like we try to do now because uh, we're all uh, navel-gazing intellectuals these days. But uh, fun stuff. Uh, It's been a long time since I've read this story. I completely forgot it was uh, a story that existed, to be honest with you. Uh, I first read this, and I read this this time in The Essential Iron Man Volume 1. So it's probably been... Every bit of 20 years since I last read it, and I you know, I can safely say that I forgot basically everything about it, including the fact that it existed in the first place. But in all of my uh, research, I'm trying to, trying to cover as many of the notable X-Men appearances as I possibly can. If along the way you notice that I missed a, uh, you know, a rather important appearance, I'm not talking about like... Them showing up at Sue and Reed's wedding for, you know, a couple of panels. You know, that stuff I can just mention as we get to a, you know, a contemporary issue uh, around that same month. I could say, hey, by the way, they were also at the wedding. We're not going to cover the entire, you know, Fantastic Four annual number three just to say, hey, they were in five panels of it. But like a uh, notable one, like this one here, or the next one we're going to discuss with Iceman and, and uh, the Human Torch teaming up. Those we'll cover. And uh, if you notice that I did miss one, I would love for you to let me know. And hey, I guess that's a pretty pretty decent segue to uh, drop in all the contact information. So why not just do that? Uh, if you want to get a hold of me for any reason, please, I encourage you to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, Instagram at 90sXmen. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Or you can call into the X-Lapsed hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join our Facebook group and talk about basically whatever you want. Uh, We are 90s X-Men on Facebook. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comic commentary listening needs, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. 
And as I beg you every day, if you like what you hear there, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, I would love for you to uh, spread the word, share the show. It would really do a lot to help the show, and uh, I tell you what, the show needs help. So any word of mouth would be greatly appreciated. Uh, Speaking of which, I greatly appreciate that you would uh, take a little bit of time out of your day and hang out with me. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.